Sometimes our experience of life in a fallen world forces us to ask some tough questions. Can my suffering and sorrow somehow be redeemed? Can God really grow something beautiful out of something broken? Is it possible to flourish and blossom on the vine in the midst of a desert? And sometimes the stories of the saints that we read in God's word provide us with glimpses of God doing just that. And as we see him rescuing and redeeming his people in the past, we find the faith to believe that he can do it again. And indeed, that he's still doing it even now for those who are his by faith. Genesis 40 ended with Joseph still languishing in prison, forgotten by the cupbearer whose dream he had interpreted and who he asked, he pleaded with him to remember him when he was restored to Pharaoh. And there is no clear pathway to the fulfillment of the dreams that had been given to Joseph by the Lord. At the beginning of this story in chapter 37, Joseph had these dreams of rising to a position of kingly authority and of his family members bowing themselves to the ground around him. And the announcement of those dreams, of course, led to very different results. His brothers attacking him and throwing him in a pit and eventually selling him into bondage in Egypt. <clears throat> and years spent as a slave in the house of an Egyptian master named Potiphar, and then a false accusation that landed him in prison in Egypt, where he kind of climbed the, the ladder within the prison and had a position of influence and <clears throat> authority and leadership even within the jail. And now he thought in chapter 40 that he had perhaps seen the, the door opening and the path that God would use to bring him up out of that pit and, and restore him in the dreams that he interpreted for uh, the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh. And indeed, the cupbearer was restored to his position in three days, just as Joseph interpreted to him. And yet the cupbearer forgot about Joseph. And chapter 41 begins with the phrase, after two whole years. So Joseph is, has forgotten all hope by this point, I imagine. Has pretty much given up on the chance that the cupbearer was going to make good on his word. And so chapter 41 continues the story in some ways that I imagine for Joseph would have been surprising and unexpected. Let's look at the first eight verses. We'll walk through this story bit by bit. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. 
and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And so we have a third pair of prophetic dreams in the story. Joseph himself had a pair of dreams in chapter 37, that we've already mentioned. And then in chapter 39, the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh landed themselves in prison. Or excuse me, chapter 40. Uh, the cupbearer and the baker landed themselves in prison and themselves had a pair of dreams. One each that Joseph then interpreted to them and they came to pass. And now we have another pair of dreams of Pharaoh himself. Now, Pharaoh has not really been a character in the story to this point. We know that he exists up there at the top of the chain, but he hasn't really been active and present in the story except for the sending of his officers to the prison and then the restoring of the cupbearer at the end of the last chapter. But now, the story centers on Pharaoh himself. He is the first character introduced. Pharaoh dreamed. Pharaoh dreamed. And so we have these two dreams, lots of parallelism that you can see between those dreams. There's seven plump cows and seven ugly cows in one and seven plump ears of grain. And indeed, seven ears of grain growing on the same, uh, same, uh, on the same stock. That would be insane productivity, right? And then seven thin, ugly ears. And then in each case, the thin, ugly cows in the one and ears of corn in the other ate up the plump ones. And Pharaoh says later that you wouldn't have been able to tell that they had eaten them because they looked just as lean and ugly as before. And so he has these dreams and he wakes up troubled. And when the king is troubled, people move, right? When the king wakes up troubled and says, I need help, heaven and earth gets moved for somebody somewhere to come to the king's aid. And so we see here this mad scramble in the palace. Find somebody, anybody who can help Pharaoh understand these dreams because he's troubled. He's worried. He's disturbed. Now, this is the most powerful man in probably the most powerful nation on the earth. He is personally bothered and has need of help. And what resources are not available to this man of all men? So he summons his chief magicians and wise men. Surely these guys have insight into such matters. And they are utterly impotent to understand the king's dreams or to provide any solace whatsoever. All the king's horses and all the king's men could do nothing to meet the need of the king in his moment of need. Now surely these wise men in Egypt represent the wisdom of the age. The very best that pagan religion has to offer. And it's worth noting the inability of worldly wisdom and philosophy to satisfy the true need of man. If what you're looking for is the wisdom of the world, you will not be satisfied in what you find. And so here Pharaoh has sought all the wisdom he can find, and no one can help him. Liam Gallagher says, Pharaoh feels unsettled by these dreams, and so he should. 
they are a reminder of his impotence to influence events of nature. This episode is a helpful reminder to us that leaders, politicians, and even dictators... Don't know where that came from. Still good? Sounds a little loud. Do we have, like, multiple mics on the same channel or something? Okay. Excuse me. Continuing his quote. This episode is a helpful reminder to us that leaders, politicians, and even dictators are not the ones who make history. History is in God's hands. He raises up and then disposes of them as he pleases. So it's interesting to take note of that even as we meet Pharaoh in this story for the first time. The most powerful man in the world can't get what he wants. Indeed, the very future of his kingdom is out of his control. Look at verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer, we've met him before, said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. At last, Joseph's old friend, the cupbearer, comes through on an old promise. I'm going to switch out mics. All right. How are we doing? Can you hear me? I talk loud. They'll get it sorted out back there. Technology's great until it's not, right? So apparently two years is how long it takes a cupbearer to uh, keep a promise, to remember what had happened to him. And so, praise God, those two years longer than Joseph anticipated, and we would have hoped, he remembers. Today, I remember my offenses. And so he brings to Pharaoh's attention this young Hebrew servant who was with them in the prison. Well, when all of the resources have been spent, when all of the wise men and magicians and the top philosophers of the nation have been counseled with and none has been found, desperate times call for desperate measures. All right, I'll hear from this Hebrew slave that's in prison. Bring him on. Let's look at verses 14 to 16. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, I want you to notice here that just as Joseph's past misfortunes 
have been symbolized by his clothing. Here, his reversal of fortune, again, is represented by a change of clothes. His brothers had stripped him of his special robe before they sold him into bondage. Potiphar's wife had held on to his outer garment as he ran out of the house and used it to bring false charges against him. And now, as his, his sudden reversal of fortune is once again represented in a note about his clothing. He is shaved and given new clothes to wear to prepare him to stand before the king. A subtle symbol that, that what has been taken away is being restored to him. And so Pharaoh comes right out with it. I have dreams. Nobody knows what to do with them. I hear that you're good at this. And Joseph could easily just eat up the praise of the king and seek position for himself and flattery and say, yes, you're right, I am, I am pretty good at interpreting dreams. I've been known to do this a time or two. But instead he says, it's not me. And the, the Hebrew word behind that is just one word. It's just basically, not me. When he says, I hear that you can interpret dreams. Not I. But God will give you a favorable interpretation. And so we note Joseph's humility and his faith in God on display in this important moment. Now in verses 17 to 24... Pharaoh repeats his dreams to Joseph. For the sake of time, we're not going to read all of those verses because it's almost verbatim, except for a detail here and there, like the one I mentioned earlier about how Pharaoh says, and you wouldn't have been able to tell because the lean cows were just as lean after they ate the plump cows as before. But there's no substantive addition here. It's just a repetition of these dreams, and now in Joseph's hearing. But do look in verse 24 as, as it ends, as he wraps up the the report of his dreams, Pharaoh says, I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So there's Pharaoh's predicament. I have these dreams, and no one knows what they mean. Let's look at Joseph's response, beginning in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, give me a few days to think about this. And pray about it and consult with God and perhaps I'll be able to come up with what the interpretation is. Because that's obviously not what it says. Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. Meaning they have the same meaning. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So Joseph quickly 
has an interpretation for these dreams, obviously given him by the Lord. And indeed, the dreams themselves were obviously given by the Lord. That's probably obvious, but sometimes it's helpful to state what is not plainly stated. And as Joseph says to Pharaoh twice, God is showing you what he is about to do, which is very merciful. God would be righteous to just let the years of famine come without warning. But he's given these dreams to Pharaoh so that he will see what is coming, so that something can be done about it. And listen to Joseph's words in verse 32. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. It is determined. It is settled. It will come about. And he says he will shortly bring it about. What an example of stubborn faith against steep odds. Joseph's own dreams had been 13 years delayed in finding their fruition. Indeed, until that very morning, he had been languishing in prison. We could forgive Joseph for being slow to trust the legitimacy of Pharaoh's dreams, even if he did rightly understand them. Well, God's telling you that there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine, but listen, he gave me some dreams 13 years ago, and they still haven't come true, right? You could forgive Joseph for having that kind of attitude, but not at all. Instead, he, he proudly gives glory to God for giving Pharaoh the dreams and himself its interpret interpretation. And he boldly declares his confidence in God's sovereign purposes. It is fixed. He will shortly bring it about. His faith is resilient despite very deep suffering and obstacles that he has faced over these 13 years. But he doesn't just give the dreams interpretation. He also somewhat audaciously offers the king some unsolicited advice. Look at verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. He doesn't necessarily put himself forward. He says, find somebody that you can trust who's wise and discerning and set him over the land. Verse 34, let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. And so he tells Pharaoh, appoint a leader and appoint overseers who would work beneath him. But all of these guys, he's probably smart to say, are under the authority of Pharaoh, right? Appoint, appoint a leader, appoint overseers who under Pharaoh's authority will gather this grain and store it in the cities. And his plan, basically, is a 20% tax. Say it ain't so, Joe. Nobody loves to hear that. Gather one-fifth of all produce during the seven years of plenty and store the grain in the cities. So you're going to have seven years where there's going to be abundance of supply. So what we need to do is tax everybody 20%, one-fifth of what they produce, and store them. And store that grain in the cities around the nation. And then when the famine comes, those storehouses will be where people find their food. It's a simple plan, 
probably a wise plan. And he doesn't explicitly put himself forward, but you could read between the lines and see Joseph might be hoping that Pharaoh might see the obvious. And he does. Let's look at Joseph's rise to power in verses 37 to 45. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Just bookmark that. We'll talk about that. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. Notice again the mention of garments being placed on Joseph. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. All right, the tables have finally turned. The gears have started turning. Interesting that Pharaoh recognizes the spirit of God in Joseph. Back in verse 38. Who can we find in whom is the spirit of God? Similar to how Potiphar, back in chapter 39, had seen that Yahweh was with Joseph and caused all that he did to succeed. So in the house of Potiphar, Joseph had risen in command, in authority under Potiphar, because it was plain to Potiphar that God was with Joseph and caused all he did to succeed. And now here is Pharaoh, after recognizing this, this valid interpretation of the dream and then this economic plan that comes on the heels of it, clearly God is with you. Now, Pharaoh wouldn't have an orthodox understanding of who God is or the triune nature of God or the covenant name Yahweh or any of those sorts of things. He believes in many gods, probably thinks he is one of them, right? And so when he says the, the spirit of God in him, he's probably not thinking the third person of the triune God here. His doctrine is not that orthodox and clear. Nevertheless, he recognizes God is with Joseph in a special way. God is with Joseph. And so we would do well to exalt him to authority. And Pharaoh is emphatic about the level of Joseph's authority in Egypt, right, over and over. No, you will only regarding the throne will you be lower than me in Egypt. And no one will pick up hand or foot without your consent in all the land of Egypt. And this, in, this emphasis on his authority includes a public parade. Verse 43, where the people cry out before Joseph, bow the knee. And we remember, maybe a bit slowly, like the cupbearer, we remember the dreams of Joseph that started this whole thing off, of others bowing to him and himself raised up in a position of kingly authority. At long last, 13 years later, 
here he is in a position of kingly rule in Egypt, and the people are bowing before him as he rides along in this chariot. Pharaoh gives Joseph a new Egyptian name, Zaphonath Paneah, and a new Egyptian wife, herself the daughter of a pagan priest. And so his acceptance into the royal court is complete. Ladies and gentlemen, meet the new prime minister of Egypt. And he gets to work immediately. Let's look at verses 46 to 49. <clears throat> Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. So these seven years of plenty are more plenteous than a typical seven years. Before God sends the seven years of famine, he sends seven years of more abundant production than they even know what to do with. They're starting with 20%. Take a fifth of what's produced and put it in these storehouses, and the storehouses can't even contain it all. It's more than they can even measure. They just give up counting. And the language here of storing up grain in abundance like the sand of the sea until it could not be measured evokes the Abrahamic covenant, doesn't it? Back in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, God said to Abraham, like the stars in the heavens and like the sand of the seashore shall your offspring be. And he told him, go and count the stars. Number them if you're able to. So will be your offspring. Even linguistic reminders here that what God is doing is not random and disconnected from the story of Genesis and the story of the Bible and the story of Abraham's family. It is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham all those years ago that we are seeing play out in bits and pieces. An interesting tension arises at this point in the story. Will Joseph, after 13 years of mistreatment, injustice, bondage, and hardship, forget about Yahweh and the covenant family? Now that he's attained the wealth and status of royalty in Pharaoh's house, that'd be pretty easy to do, wouldn't it? It's really easy to cry out to God for help when you're in a pit. But when you're riding high and you're second in command and you've got all that you need and you've got a new wife and a new life and new respect, it's pretty easy to forget God, isn't it? Indeed, he's got an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife. Is Joseph going to forsake the family? Will Joseph forget his roots and abandon the distinctness to which Yahweh has called Abraham and his family now that he's wearing Egyptian clothes, working for Egypt's king, taken an Egyptian name and married an Egyptian wife? Did God bring Joseph all this way just to see him lose himself in the trappings of Egyptian life and idolatry? Well, I think we have a strong hint at the answer to that question and what happens next. Look at verses 50 to 52. 
Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardships in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He's given his sons Hebrew names. And indeed, he's given them names, each of which gives specific glory to Yahweh for his faithful presence with him in the land of his suffering and sojourn. The name Manasseh sounds like the Hebrew for forget, to make forget. Dugan and Harmon say this, what Joseph did by naming his son Manasseh was to reshape the significance of the past by putting it into the context of what God was doing in his life. His son became a permanent testimony to God's power to redeem the past. Because indeed, if you name your son forgetful, that's not actually forgetting, is it? You're kind of branding him with a memory of what you're saying you've forgotten, right? It's like, don't think about a pink elephant. What are you thinking about? Ah, thinking about a pink elephant, right? I named my son forgetful. But every time I call his name, I remember. I remember where I came from. I remember the hardship and the suffering I have endured. And I remember indeed that God has been with me even in those darkest places. The name Ephraim means fruitful, to make fruitful. And so he names his second son Ephraim. Applying the label fruitful over our afflictions comes when we're able to see at least some of the ways in which God turns our pain into profit. It's becoming clear to Joseph by now that the mistreatment and bondage he's endured have prepared him for this moment where he is in a position to receive and extend the blessing of God. And so part of our discipleship to Christ in a fallen world is learning to recognize the deeper layers of meaning beneath the surface of our own suffering. What is God producing in me through this hardship? How is God working to redeem this experience, to bring about the spiritual flourishing not only of myself but of others? Those are the kinds of reflections that I think are evident in the names that Joseph gives to his two sons. So I don't think Joseph is in danger of disappearing into an Egyptian identity, even though he's assumed its trappings. He remembers where he came from. He remembers who he is. He remembers Yahweh's faithful presence. And he celebrates and worships that God has made him fruitful in the land of his affliction. Friends, we need to develop lenses like this for the traumas and tragedies in our own lives. Of course, we'll not truly forget our afflictions, but we learn to reframe them with an eye toward what God is doing in them. We read earlier from Romans 5. It says that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame. God is building something in our suffering and our sorrows. We need to train our eye. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. No suffering among the people of God is wasted. No suffering among the children of God is meaningless. There is no random, capricious hardship and sorrow and suffering for the child of God in this world. God is building something through it. Something in you, something for you, something through you, for others. Laura Story has a great song called Something Beautiful, and here's part of one of the verses. It says, when I'm tired of pretending and I can't recall my lines, do I say I'm barely breathing or just say I'm doing fine? I admit there is a yearning for the hurting to subside, but not at the risk of missing what you're doing in my life. This is the Joseph lens through which we must learn to view our suffering. What is God doing? What is God building? And we might not see it. We might not understand it in the moment or even sometime later. But we live by faith that it's not for nothing. May we learn in our suffering to know and experience the presence of God as our good. And to trust that he's accomplishing real, actual good for our future by the very hardships we must endure. The last few verses of chapter 41 tell us about the famine that comes and indeed set the stage for the next part of the drama that will unfold. Look at verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the, the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Well, the years of plenty are over, and famine has struck the earth, not just Egypt, but all lands, all the surrounding nations as well. And now people will begin to travel to Egypt and will bow themselves before Joseph in order to seek the bread that will save their lives. A couple of notes here. First, a component of God's covenant with Abraham from the very beginning has always been the universal blessing that would spread through his family to the rest of the world. All the way back in Genesis 12, verse 3, when Abraham was still going by Abram, 
God said to him, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then he's reiterated that promise in different ways throughout the generations of Abraham and his family. Here, tangibly, actually, literally, are nations of the earth kept alive through the presence and provision of Abraham's descendant, Joseph. God is fulfilling, in part, his promise to Abraham. That through Abraham and his covenant family, the nations of the earth would be blessed. Second thing I want you to note. All the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain. I imagine all the earth includes the land of Canaan, where a man named Jacob and his 11 sons lived. But that's for next week. Joseph's surprising ascension to power in Egypt is an astounding story on its own, of course. But it serves another purpose in the Bible when you consider his life and experience against the backdrop of the big story the Bible is telling from start to finish. With the Abrahamic covenant in view, that is God's promise to Abraham to make of his descendants a great nation and through that nation to extend divine blessing to all the peoples of the earth. With that in view, Abraham's great-grandson Joseph is really a precursor or a foreshadowing of another future descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And where Joseph's life partially fulfills these promises and raises our hopeful expectations of the king that would emerge from this family line, all God's promises to Abraham find their final and complete fulfillment in Jesus. While Joseph was raised from the pit and exalted to a position of power at Pharaoh's right hand, Jesus was raised from a grave and exalted to the throne of heaven at the right hand of God on high. While Joseph was given honor and prestige in the land of Egypt and many bowed themselves before him, Jesus was given the name above all names that every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth would one day bow to him in homage. And while Joseph, from his new position of kingly power, bestowed blessing upon the nations by providing bread in days of famine. Jesus, risen and reigning from heaven, offers to all the bread of life and promises that whoever eats will never go hungry. May we find in him this bread to satisfy our souls forever. Let's pray.